Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and we have another podcast recommendation for you. It's called How Do We Fix It? And it's hosted by Richard Davies and Jim Meggs. On How Do We Fix It? Richard and Jim talk to all kinds of thought leaders and experts and professors and researchers about how we fix problems, all kinds of problems, cultural problems and political problems and medical problems, any problem you can think of. You can find How Do We Fix It? by typing How Do We Fix It? podcast into Google, or you can go to their website, which is howdowefixit.me. You can also find How Do We Fix It? on Apple Podcasts. I really enjoy this podcast and I highly recommend it to you. And we'd like it so much that we're going to give you a, a little sample of what you'll hear there. The following episode is from How Do We Fix It? Jim, Nearly everyone we've interviewed on How Do We Fix It is from the front row of society. Right. We're both college educated. We like to learn things. We both moved around in our lives to advance our careers. In this episode, more about the back row. We'll hear an argument which says front row people, like us, are isolated from the rest of the country, valuing material wealth while ignoring community, dignity, faith, and happiness. Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, Chris Arnotti. Every drug den, there's a Quran or a Bible or, or rosaries. The one I always remember is a homeless couple who, over the course of my three years of knowing them, lived in 20 different abandoned buildings, empty fields. And the one thing they brought with them was a picture of the Last Supper. The world I came from, what I call the cold, secular, scientific world, just doesn't really seem to to do anything on the streets. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? There's a lot of talk in the media and from politicians about there being two Americas. But do we really know what life is like for America's other half? Our guest today left a high-powered job as a bond trader on Wall Street and then traveled 150,000 miles around the U.S. to find out. His name is Chris Arnotti, and he's a roving photographer and journalist, a kind of freelance anthropologist of the American underclass. His new book is called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris, you took a really unusual journey to becoming a journalist who, who covers overlooked America. You worked on Wall Street. Tell us why you left. I think at some level, I just got frustrated with the narrowness of that life. Your only metric for success is how much money you make. And, you know, if you had asked me before the financial crisis, I would have said that what I was doing as a banker was benign. If you asked me afterwards, I would have said it wasn't benign, it was bad. And so, you know, over the preceding five years after the financial crisis, I kind of drifted further and further away from, from banking, both physically and mentally. And you spent time in a part of New York City, the Bronx, called Hunts Point. And some of the people you spent time with were drug addicts and prostitutes 
and, and you got in pretty deep. Could you describe your journey? I think I've always been a walker. And so even when I was very happy on Wall Street, I was taking long walks. And as I got to be older and after the financial crisis, those walks started to transform as I brought my camera along. And at some point, I realized I had seen all of New York except for the Bronx. And of course, I was told not to go to the Bronx. It was too dangerous, Hunts Point in particular. And so, of course, I had to go there. <laughs> that was enough. Um, and what I saw there, relative to what I was told, was just so jarringly different. Despite the problems, the sex work and the drugs, it was still a very, very vibrant neighborhood that still had a lot of community and a sense of place to it. And... So I started spending more and more time in the South Bronx, drawn in by kind of the things I saw that were beautiful, that were overlooked, like the pigeon keepers or the, the bike clubs. People take old Schwinn bikes and basically pimp them out and um, the different games of dominoes that were taking place. Everywhere you go, you bring a camera. And really, this journey started when you began photographing some of the people you met. And some of the photographs are pretty rough. You've got people with needles in their mouth, people shooting up. But how did you get people to open up to you? And, and what do you think the value of bringing these pictures out of that world and into our world might be? Yeah, I try my best never to take what I call a gotcha picture, where I'm taking a picture without the person's approval. Um, I always get to know the person first before taking their picture. I always ask them. We, we in the front row have control over how our image gets looked at, how we how we are how we viewed by the public. You know, we have professional headshots. We we take a lot of a lot of care in how we look, and I think we should afford that dignity to everybody, including those who are poor. And I think that rarely happens. A lot of people take you know shots from a distance with a telephoto lens of homeless, which I think is just entirely offensive. You know, you, you should. You should get to know the person before you take their picture. Some people have, have criticized your photos, saying that perhaps uh, you shouldn't have paid your subjects, and then also photos of people shooting up. How do you respond? Um, in terms of the pay, um, I help people out like I would help anybody out. I think it's unfair to take someone's picture without helping them. I think you know you don't steal their soul, but you certainly borrow it. Um, in terms of the graphic photos, those came after a year to two years of knowing that person. Um, and, you know, I'm sure some of those people will now be upset with that picture um, because life is complicated. But, you know, it took a two-year process of getting close enough to somebody that they were comfortable letting me shoot. I mean, I think um, there's so many, so many ethical issues attached to taking of photos and it's all complicated, and I think there's rarely a a completely ethical way to take a photo of somebody. And, and for people, and, and for people who know nothing about New York City, this is a this is a poor neighborhood, right? It, it's one of the poorest. It has one of the highest crime rates. Um, but I think there's a misconception about places that are supposedly high crime. They're they're, they're not filled with crime. Ninety five percent of the people are still playing by the rules. It is a very poor neighborhood, and what's frustrating about it is it's it's only, as a crow flies, I guess, two miles from the richest neighborhood in New York City. Um, it's maybe 15 minutes by car, 30 minutes by subway. Um, so the difference is, is very jarring. And, and those dichotomies clearly fascinate you because by 2015, you'd left your Wall Street job, and you hit the road and started driving around the country exploring 
other marginalized communities. Right. I was kind of motivated by by both personal interests, but also by politics. I was so frustrated that the stigma that was applied to Hunts Point was so unfair um, that I kind of wanted to see if that was true in other neighborhoods that had been kind of ignored or stigmatized. Places like New Haven, Connecticut, or Worcester, Massachusetts, or Selma, Alabama, or, or Buffalo. Talk about the stigma, the ways that those communities are stigmatized, and how that differs with what you found. I think there's this really ugly trend of, of um, accusing the community of, of some personal failing, as opposed to looking at the political structures they find themselves, as opposed to saying the residents don't have access to quality education, the residents don't have access to quality jobs, the residents don't have access to quality food. I think when you when you you blame a group of people for their behavior without addressing the situation they find themselves in or, or, or face, then I think you're doing it wrong. Several years ago, you coined a term for an overlooked part of the American public. You called them back row kids. Uh, could, could you explain? But I think more and more the divide that seems to have the most impact is the educational divide. It's correlated with wealth. What I mean by back row is, is, is generally people who, who don't have elite degrees, you know, the people who sat in the back row of classes who um, didn't necessarily perform well in school or didn't take to it or didn't want to take to it or whatever. Um, and I think in our society, we put so much value in education now that those people who lack elite college degrees or postgraduate degrees tend to, tend to become overlooked I think a lot of us in the front row tend to look at things we can measure. We're very focused on our careers. We don't really have an adherence to place. We tend to move a lot. We also tend to be quantitatively based and secular because, again, you can't really measure faith. It's just something that exists, and so we don't really think about it much. Um, those two, kind of the secular focus as well as the kind of mobility, is very different when you're in the front row compared to those people who are in the back row. Everywhere you went, you also found yourself in churches. Tell us about the importance of faith. Um, you know, it's just it's just every drug den, there's a Quran or a Bible or, or rosaries. The one I always remember was a homeless couple who, over the course of my three years of knowing them, lived in 20 different abandoned buildings, empty fields. And the one thing they brought with them was a picture of the Last Supper. The world I came from, what I call the cold, secular, scientific world, just doesn't really seem to, to do anything on the streets. It's just, it's just a bunch of dreary institutions that have linoleum floors and harsh lighting and, and rules. And churches have a lot of beauty in them, and they, and they offer people you know, uh, the, the ability to... Um, or at least the claim that they're going to um, wash away their past sin. And many people want their past washed away. But I also think that when you're on the streets, you're always close to death. And so you can't deny mortality. Um, you're also always understanding that people are sinners. People make mistakes all the time, and nobody is above that. And so I think the core message of a lot of faith is a lot more resonant when you're closer to death and when you recognize that people are all fallible. Your book is called Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. Chris, what did you learn 
in your travels or what are you learning in your travels from back row people that the rest of us don't know? Um, I think how if you have an elite education, you have a lot more privilege than I think people recognize. And you also have a very different way of looking at the world. You know, one of the things I say repeatedly, and I, I don't mean this in a in an in a accusatory way, but we in the front row often advocate for the poor. We often, with good intentions, say this is what needs to be done. This is how we can help them. And in many cases, we don't understand the lived reality of the poor. You know, I think there's a line in my book, I forget exactly how I said it, where we tend to think that the best way to help them is to give them what we have, you know, um, as or make make what we have available to them, as opposed to maybe maybe we should rethink what we think is valuable, because we're the ones who generally set the rules for society. We're the powerful people. We're the ones who influence politicians. I mean, all our politicians are front row up until this one have clearly come from the same cloth of valuing education, valuing um, science, um, valuing mobility, all these things that we take for granted as everybody wants. But, you know, one of the most striking things I, I, I saw was, you know, for a lot of people, going to college is not easy. Um, you know, you have to leave your family. And a lot of people just can't do that. They just can't get up and leave their family. Their family needs them and they need their family. So we tend to see this path to the front row as available to everybody and, 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 and everybody wanting it. It's not clear to me that everybody wants it. A similar thing that you often see when people look at some of these communities, say a, a fading coal mining region in West Virginia, well, why don't people just learn new skills and move somewhere else to where the jobs are? That's the route to success. You talk to a lot of people in these kinds of areas. What did they tell you? Well, you know, I think when I ask them, like, you know, why you, why you stay here, they look at me like that was a crazy question. I mean, it's their home. And, you know, going back to something earlier, we talked about how we only value things that you can measure. You can't really measure the value of staying put, you know, the value of place. I mean, there, there's value attached to, 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 the, to the local community and knowing people and, and knowing you and you liking the place. And I think it's immensely offensive to tell people to move. I mean, you know, why are we asking everybody just to get up and move? I mean, some people, some people can't also just, you know, some people, their family needs them. You know, there's, there's many cases, I, especially in minority communities of the example I use all the time is of the, of the young girl in East LA who couldn't go away to college because she's her mom's translator. In addition, you're also asking people to give up the one asset they have, which is often their home, and in many cases sell it into a declining market. So you know, it's like, you know, they're not going to get much for it. Um, it. It's all they have. So a lot of people you talked to weren't on the streets. They were retired people having coffee at McDonald's. They were people who worked various blue-collar jobs and definitely not part of the – elites that we talk about, not college educated, but also people whose lives were pretty together in their overlooked communities. What did you learn from those people? I think one of the things I learned was how devastating the loss of being able to get a job right out of high school and have it 
for all your life, a stable job. How devastating the loss of those jobs has been to these communities. It's, it's changed everything. You know, there is a woman in Battle Creek, Michigan. She and her husband had both literally walked out of high school onto factory floors and had good lives. And one of the things she said to me was, um, you know, I think she's 83, 84. You know, she goes, I'm glad I'm not young. She looks at her grandkids who don't have access to what her and her husband had, which is a steady job that pays the bills, that allows them to build a family without intense anxiety. And I think, you know, there's a lot of people in these communities who who look at the economic landscape now and don't want to be part of it. You made an earlier reference to uh, the current president, to, to Donald Trump, not being like his predecessors, even though he does very much come from a privileged class. Um, what did he figure out that others didn't when it came to speaking to back row kids? First of all, let me just make it clear. I don't support him. <laughs> I just want to get that out there. Um, and also, I would I will say that 80 percent of my of the people I talked to in my book did not vote for him. 50 um, percent of the people in my book didn't vote. But um, what he gets, because remember, so much of his life has been about selling to the back row, selling the illusion of wealth, selling the illusion of education. Um, he's always pitching something uh, to the back row. So I think he understands a language. And you know, I, one of the things I keep on saying is there are two very different languages we speak. There's a front row language and then there's a back row language. And Trump knows how to speak both languages. And that, that to me is, is, is his, his ticket to whatever he's gotten. He knows exactly how to indicate to the back row that he's not part of the front row, even though he is part of the front row, you know, not spelling his tweets correctly. I mean, you know, and he knows how to make the front row very angry, which I think, unfortunately, is very popular in the back row. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Chris Arnotti, who is the author of a new book, Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America. We're a show about solutions, or at least asking questions about solutions. Chris is part of a better way to approach this question, trying to help people in their own communities rather than expecting them to move or expecting them to utterly change their lifestyle? I think that's certainly the case. I mean, I think, you, you know, it's it's kind of harm reduction attitude in, with drugs. You, you accept that this is what person wants and you, you try to make it best for them, you know, we we need to rethink about this this culture we've created where we we need to be transitory. We need to go to these certain institutions to get education. I think we in the front row need to revalue what institutions we think are valuable and which ones we don't think are valuable. We need to 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 revalue the local community education, the, the local state school, um, which is a way of basically empowering those communities again. Chris, our show is about solutions, and usually at a certain point we pivot to like, okay, what's your list of policy suggestions? Your book is very different from that. In fact, at the end, you explicitly say that you don't want to make policy suggestions. In fact, you have this great little thing you talk about. Somebody might 
disagree with a certain policy and they think it's bad. And your first response used to be, well, actually, and then you explain why, <laughs> you know, the bank bailout was worthwhile or something. And you said, maybe you should stop saying, well, actually, maybe I should listen. Is that the solution we should all take away from your your journey? I hope so. I mean, I, I know that sounds very um, pie in the sky, but I do think that um, that we should try our best, especially those of us in the front row, because again, and it goes both ways. I wish the back row would listen to the front row more and respect education more. I'm not glamorizing the back row life as not having problems, but I think because we're so influential, I think we have an extra special need to listen. I think if I had one suggestion to policy people is to get out of your bubble. Don't just rely on data. Don't just look at models on a spreadsheet. Just go out to, you know, if you're, if you're enacting a policy that's going to impact a minority community, go to that minority community and spend a month there and listen to people tell you what they want and, and how it's going to impact them. Chris Arnotti, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? And thank you for having me. And more coming up from Jim and I on How Do We Fix It? Okay, the grammarian in me says, <laughs> Jim and me. Oh. oh, okay, Jim and me. Thank you, Jim. This show reminds me of, of two other episodes of How Do We Fix It? And boy, that's happening more than ever, Jim, with well over 200 episodes. There are so many times when I think, I've heard that point before, but put by a different person in a different frame. And in this case, I'm thinking of Selena Zito, where we looked at Trump supporters. And the other show, which, which you mentioned, Oren Cass, who is saying economic growth should be measured by more than just how much we can consume. There's a critique of, of our modern version of capitalism that I think is important. And what you're hearing from both the on the left, but also some people on the right is, are we measuring the right things? Yes, of course, economic growth matters. But is it just because we can buy more and better iPhones? Or is it because people get to live productive lives, have good jobs in communities where they where they're, they're known and they're comfortable and they have roots? And I think you know, you see in Chris's work, he started with the far fringe with, you know, sex workers and, and drug addicts. But he also talked to a lot of people who weren't that far out of the edge, but are definitely not part of this front row society. And that's probably where you find the kind of the Trump voter, you know, people who feel disrespected, but they also feel like I'm playing by the rules. I'm trying to lead a good life. Uh, I don't want to move to San Francisco and be a coder, <laughs> you know, and why does, why am I being so looked down on as we who are in the elite, who've gone to good schools? Are we looking down on these people? Too often we are. I was very struck by Chris's humility. And he, he actually mentions that, that we need a dose of humility if we're going to solve important problems. And something that we can learn, and that Chris has certainly learned in his travels from people not like us, is, is faith and place. Those two things are very important to people. And if you're going to try and help raise up um, folks who are uh, unemployed or, or, or really on the margins of society, don't try to change them too much. And Help them where they are. And maybe 
be willing to respect what these institutions do in these people's lives. You go on any college campus and you talk about people who go to some of the kinds of churches that he was spending time in, and they think they're a bunch of horrible, racist, you know, uh, white supremacists or something. And there certainly has been a great deal of criticism of, of conservative churches recently. Yeah. And some of it, and, and some of it's justified, justified, but, but, but not all of it, at, no. but, but you have, you could question some of the impact that the institution might have in, in areas that is not as positive without dismissing the people. That's why, the, you know, he calls his book Dignity. I think we've all gotten on the left and the right way too quick to say, you're part of this group that has ideas I don't like, therefore you're a terrible person. And there's a backlash against that that is has its own problems. But I think that his sense of of humility, of of just hearing people out on their own terms first is an important model for, for all of us. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davis. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. The title music composed by Lou Stravinsky. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio, which means podcasts. I'm not sure why I say digital audio. We make podcasts uh, for companies and nonprofits. If you want to hear more, then check us out at our website, DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening.